Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath, and let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. This is Marnie, and I'm here with Dwayne. Hello, everybody. Good to be here. And I'm very excited to welcome back a guest who's been with us before, and he's one of my favorite people, so I'm very glad that he's decided to return. So I'm going to introduce Stan Tatkin today, and I'm going to say two things before we get started. One is that Stan is currently on vacation with his lovely wife in Hawaii, And so there might be some Hawaiian music in the background, and that's what that is. So I hope that that's not (laughs) disruptive in any way, and I hope you'll enjoy the music. I'm enjoying it as we talk. It should be relaxing. Yeah, it's relaxing. Yeah, I'm just going to say thank you for giving us this time and giving us your wisdom and being willing to share it with everybody. I just really appreciate it. It's great to be with the two of you again. It really is. Awesome. Well, the other thing I wanted to say was that the response, Stan, that we got, and I think I've told you this, um, to the first podcast with you, it is one of the most popular episodes that we have done. It has made a huge difference in the relationships of people that we work with and all of our listeners who we don't even know around the world. And perhaps one of the most important things that came out of that that I'd like you to know, if I haven't told you this already, is the part where you actually said that the only way that a relationship can heal after betrayal is if the betrayed partner takes their power back. Yes. And that was a game changer for people. So I don't know if maybe we can even start with that. And if you want to elaborate a little bit before we dive into your new book, which we're really excited to talk to you about. Well, it dovetails into the new book also, because here we're talking about a symmetrical relationship of equals. At least that's what we would expect unless otherwise agreed to. But most people don't agree to inequality. So a relationship of equals in a symmetrical relationship, we would expect those people to share power and to share authority, even if they delegate certain things to each other. But the buck stops with both of them, right? That in a situation where information, I would think, is one of the greatest commodities that a team or a union or an alliance has, is misused. And information is withheld, robbing the other of any choice, right? That's the violation in this and many kinds of betrayal. That is an egregious violation of rights. And so it should actually break the relationship. A certain trust it does. And so that requires, you know, a remedy that should have been there before this uh, betrayal happened, but could have been predicted that it would have happened because there were a lot of factors in it not 
installed properly, such as structure, such as, you know, an agreed upon structure of how we run this relationship, how we do business, what we will do, what we won't do. So the only remedy is to correct that and take away from the person who misused information their ability to be gatekeeper any longer, which shouldn't have been there anyway, and that the the person who is betrayed has already lost the relationship as it was. Both people lost, and that must be the case. Otherwise, nobody learns anything. So this is a teardown and a rebuild. However, there has to be justice, and the justice here is that the person who is betrayed has all the leverage at this juncture. And it must be that way because the other person spent their leverage by being treasonous, let's say. You know, it's a dramatic word, but for drama's sake, that's how it feels. Mm-hmm. So there's an imbalance in the beginning because of the injury. Uh, and so the person who has been aggrieved has to take their place in standing up for principles that would make it worth their while to continue, right? Terms and conditions, because we're talking about continuance. Why do it? Why go forward? And if that person isn't taking their seat, as disrupted as they are emotionally, psychologically, cognitively, in every which way, physically, from the reveal, that information, they don't take that seat, then there isn't the possibility of continuance in a manner that I wish it to be, which is secure functioning, the way it should have been in the beginning. So a lot of this rests, the rehabilitation of the partner who not only cheated or lied or withheld information, but there's a whole cluster of behaviors that surround that usually. The rehabilitation of that person rests in the aggrieved partner the grief partner now has all the leverage. Therapists never do. Um, therapists are hired guns and they have no leverage whatsoever. But the partners do in that they don't want to lose the relationship. That's the attachment biology right. in action. Yes. And so mm-hmm. we can leverage that. <laughs> the hardest thing, though, is to get the aggrieved partner to take their place and to take their seat and take their power in good faith that doing so is the only way to make the relationship work going forward. There is no other way. But it's hard because people don't want to lose their partnership um, for a variety of reasons. But the main one is that biological mandate, an existential threat, primitive threat to survival that if I lose you, I die in some way. I was just going to say, when we're working with couples, is that the person who's done the betrayal really has to get that. Like, they really have to get that they are, in a way, responsible to take that place. But if they can frame it in a way that helps them see it as repair and not punishment, they can make that progress forward. And that's when I see the relationships begin to heal once that paradigm has shifted and it's a difficult one to do. It's hard. It's For both people, yeah. Yeah, for both. And I see so much fear, terror 
in the betrayed partners often, because like you said, they've got a life with this person and they often have children with this person and dreams and history. And, you know, there's so much at stake and it's hard for them often to do what you're talking about. It's hard for them sometimes to try to take the power back. And yet, as you said, it's what's necessary. It takes a leap of faith that if I stand by my convictions and my convictions are pro-social, not pro-self like you, partner, pro-social in that what I want, I believe is also in your best interest as well, not just mine, your best interest as well. I'm gonna stand by that, you know, take it or leave it, but these are the terms and conditions for my continuance and they're non-negotiable. That takes a lot of faith that the other person also doesn't want to lose the relationship and that they are bound by the same stickiness. That's going to be the fire that moves that person to being smarter, wiser, better person, which is good for both people, right? All of this is towards good, right? It's not punishment. It is a consequence of what happened that in order for us to go forward, everything must shift, everything must change. No more can it be anything like it was because there are so many components to what it was that contributed to this. It wasn't simply that one event or the events that were, uh, that constituted the betrayal. So it's a great opportunity to move in the suffering both are going through, which is very different their suffering is very different because I, I don't know about the two of you, I rarely come across a secret keeper who's responsible for this betrayal who has had the same experience themselves. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. One of the hardest components of this is really getting the person who's done the betrayal to understand the extent of the damage and the pain and the hurt and the trauma that that secret has done to their partner and educating them on that. Sometimes it's it's shocking to them to actually come to terms with that, to like go, oh my gosh, this is incredible, the amount of pain I actually caused. And often when they see that, you know, they have to go through their own shame and their own guilt, but sometimes they can make that transition to get to that other phase where they do say, okay, I really got to help my partner because now I understand the damage I've done. But sometimes it's hard to get that concept across. It is very hard. Uh, it takes about a year because there's usually a developmental issue that is there, maybe in one or at least one, but maybe both partners. So the suffering is going to grow them both up. The therapist has to scaffold both of them because either of them could jump off of this because it's just not worth it, it's too much. For instance, the seeker keeper has to understand that they're both in the role of wrongdoer or villain and hero. The hero part is the person who's in the best position to heal the trauma they actually created, which is incredible, right? Incredible. It's so hard to do when day in, day out, you are being yelled at, called names, um, ignored, um, maybe I don't want to be with you, you know, woken up in the middle of the night, you have a flashback. This goes along with the PTSD the partner is, uh, is going to have. And so this is painful for the therapist too, because the therapist is sitting through all of this, knowing that they're in a certain phase where they could break up at any moment. It's very um, painful. Yeah it's, yeah, it's extremely painful and uh, it's palpable. 
especially when you see them both doing the best they can, but it's still not enough. Yeah. Yeah. That is actually a really hard place to be and to witness that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going through that now with a couple of couples where they're actually dancing as fast as they can. There is no, I'm not getting any deception. I'm not getting any sense that somebody is resting on their laurels. They're really working as hard as they can. But the limitations that they're coming across were always there. And now they're showing very clearly when relief is required the most by both of them, it's very difficult for them to get it. Not because they're acting in bad faith, but because they can't integrate, organize how this happened and who they both are enough to be able to think away from being perpetrator or victim, right? Yeah. They can't yet do it. And so it's very hard to witness that. And many times I'll say, you know, I really do see that you're both doing the best you can at this time. I didn't before, but now I do. And then Harry say, no, I don't think you are. I think this person's not doing the best they can. They can yeah, yeah. I have quite a few couples <laughs> where I absolutely see that. And um, something I wanted to ask you, Stan, is I'm imagining that there are listeners who are hearing what you're saying about certain things having been present prior to the betrayal. And a lot of betrayed partners have historically been pathologized by therapists in many ways about, you know, that they're crazy or they're codependent. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to what you meant by that. I'm trying to remember what I said. Could you give me a little more? I think there were two things. The first time you said something about um, there was either one or both of the partners had some developmental issues prior to the betrayal. That's not an escape clause. That's not a get-out-of-jail-free clause. That is for the clinician to know what we're up against as we move them forward because their differences and their skill set and their ability to have compassion, empathy, their ability to be contrite, to empathize, all comes into play at this juncture. And whatever limitations there were are now really clear. We're not talking about deficits per se, but we're talking about that they're in a pickle and they're both locking each other in in a certain way they can't get out. So some of that is conditional, situational, and some of that is developmental. Um, they're playing catch-up here, whereas before they didn't have a crisis where they were up against each other's limitations to put themselves in the other's shoes. Right? And so we're dealing with a lot of factors, a lot of forces that are working to frustrate them both. But with patience, this evens out, this comes out. But it's always through the suffering, unfortunately, that they and we go through that development moves forward. At least in this situation, we don't want suffering always. <laughs> but if we're moving up a level in our development, that's the only thing that causes change. Yeah, I was going to ask the question because, you know, when I see clients, once they kind of get the concept of the harm caused, right, and they really start to understand the betrayal trauma, they get that, and then their arms kind of go up and they go, okay, now what? And it's this next piece, which is all of these skills that, like you were saying, maybe developmentally they never got, and so they don't even know how to do it. And it's like, I guess the hard grind of learning these skills and practicing these skills, but that there are practical things that you can do or say or behave that actually... It can feel like a foreign language to that person. Yeah, it can feel like a foreign language. And here's the thing. Uh, clinically, 
if we break this down into phases, the first phase, we can't do any of that because there is reluctance to look forward because of a justice issue. And not just a justice issue, but a trust issue is completely devastating. And so moving forward is uh, a little like giving somebody with stomach flu, you know, would you like something to eat? Um, no. Uh, why would you do that? So we can't introduce a lot in the beginning. We're holding them in the beginning. We're scaffolding them, letting the dust settle a little bit, letting time heal a little bit, making sure they're safe. And then we start pushing forward. We have to be working towards a future. At the same time, we're dealing with the past or there's no motivation to go into the future, right? So there has to be a carrot somewhere looking forward. Otherwise, why even consider it? Yes. So the therapist is balancing these two things while not being a voice of dismissiveness for the injured party, right? Who thinks we're just ignoring what happened. I get a lot of pushback and sometimes anger, real anger from, well, it can go both ways. I can have it from either partner, but often from a betrayed partner who feels like, how can you talk about the future? How can you talk about creating a shared narrative, right? Moving forward. How do we do any of that when all of this stuff happened in the past? And while I absolutely understand that question, I also say, but you're here. You're here with me because you clearly want to be with this person, right? You want to have a future. Or you're not sure you want to get rid of them. Right. That's another way to put it. So it's a real tricky... They may not want the other person. Right, right. But they don't, they don't, they're confused. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of confusion in this. It's a, it's a complicated thing. While you're entertaining what you're going to do, why not think about what could be? That's a great way to look at it. It's so overwhelming for the whole system. Is so much is going on, and there's so many pieces. And I think letting them know this is going to take time. This isn't going to be fixed in a week or two or a month or three months. You're looking at at least a year to um, establish some basic level of trust to take the risk to do this work. Now, there's ways that the secret keeper can prolong this, and uh, those are going to happen in the beginning for an extent because they are who they are and they have the reflexes and they're going to do similar things that will raise the ire of the other person or the suspiciousness of the other person. But we try to keep them from making it worse by showing them what they did this last time that extends this period because how they responded now is going to lengthen the period because the other partner now is unsure whether they can trust them because of how they're responding to a complaint or to an emotion. So very hard to do, very hard for both people to hang on and to hold this tension, and especially when there's so little reward. You know, it's all stick. There's no carrot. One of the things you talked about in your book, you bring up a lot, and, and I like is, um, you know, talking about like threat memory and slowly replacing threat memory, right? I would love to talk a little bit about that more and how that can be helpful as repair takes place. And then also you talk a lot about how we fall onto procedural memory. Yes. That we're automatic creatures. We are creatures of habit. And I would love to kind of pick your brain a little bit more and talk about those two concepts because I think they could be really, really helpful to our audience. 
And maybe before you do that, let's just introduce our listeners to the book for those who are not familiar with it, you know, so we can give some context to those things that Dwayne was just talking about. Yeah. And the book is called In Each Other's Care, and it has a longer subtitle I never remember. And this book is different than the other ones I've written for a lot of reasons, all of which I won't get into. But I decided to write a book that's divided by complaint instead of uh, giving a book on theory. And I left a lot of things out that I put in other books because I wanted to emphasize, um, because this was written during the pandemic and I was frustrated by, you know, like everybody was frustrated by the pandemic, but I was also frustrated by my experience doing telehealth and dealing with couples, really focusing on stopping the bleeding that is happening with couples, different than working with individuals. We have a duty to deal with the system that is operating in a fashion that can't be sustained, that's too threatening, too unfair, too unjust. And so we we have an obligation to deal with, with the safety and security issues that are at the forefront of most of these complaints that come into our office and to make sure that partners are are behaving in a way that stops the damage now instead of doing deeper work. So this really focused on common complaints. (laughs) Dwayne, you were saying earlier that some of them are kind of extreme. But the point of the book is less about these complaints and more about the problem that that surrounds them. And that is any couple that does not co-create a structure themselves, a structure of what this shared mythology called a relationship is, by their own definition, um, how they're going to govern each other, rules of behavior, rules of engagement to protect each other from each other. All human beings must have that. And a shared ethic or a shared culture of relational ethics. This is essential for any union. And any union that doesn't have that is not going to be long-lived. So that's one. Two is the manner in which human primates interact when one or both or all people are under stress. That has to be understood as a problem across the human board. It has nothing to do with sex, gender, uh, race, culture, religion. It has nothing to do even with, with where we are in time. All human primates will react the same under stress. If we feel threatened, we'll be threatening. And it's very easy for this to occur if we don't watch out, if we don't understand certain rules and principles of human behavior and how the brain works. So I really wanted to make that very, very clear that there are things that we do or don't do that put us in jeopardy in a two-person system. We either pay attention to that or we pay the consequences. So that's where the book came out of. And I keep repeating the same thing over and over again, regardless of the problem that is being presented, because I'm trying to drive that point home. So back to the original question. So procedural memory is cheap memory. Think of it that way. It doesn't really cost us very much. We don't have to expend energy. It's the memory that we use uh, when learning to ride a bike. You know, we learn to ride a bike. All oars are in the water. Um, everything, all the sensory motor systems are engaged. Our brain is fully engaged because we're trying to learn this new balancing act. And it's exciting, it's novel, and so on. And then it gets relegated to automation. And now we're riding the bike. We can do lots of different things at the same time. Maybe some things we shouldn't do when we're riding the bike. And so that's procedural memory, body memory, 
everything old is going to be, everything new rather is going to be old soon, including our partner, including our kids. We automate everything to conserve energy. That's a biological principle of energy conservation. So it makes life easier, but it also creates more problems because we stop paying attention, we stop being fully present, and we make too many errors in communication, memory, and perception by using pattern recognition and memory as a way of not only recognizing good things, but recognizing things we find or remember as threatening. So very little of our day is just using critical thinking, higher cortical thought cognition, which is more energy expending. And so we prefer not to, especially at home. We take shortcuts. We think we know our partner's face. We haven't looked at it for a month, but we hold a memory of it. We stop doing formalities that would be afforded to any stranger, but we think we're family. And so we lose all those formalities. We take shortcuts. We think we're listening. We think we're clear. Um, and none of that's true. And we're also responding very quickly to pattern recognition, which is good in some areas, but very bad for misunderstanding each other. And that's where we shoot first, ask questions later. So what happens to a couple is that if they don't know better, they're going to get into a loop of reaction in systems, it's really the system is reacting to itself, right? The parties are merely, uh, you know, cogs in the wheel, but they feel it's very personal and they, they link it to a personal narrative that creates meaning around it. But one's personal narrative is not pro-social. One's personal narrative is always pro-self. I'm looking at why I'm in pain. Of course, it's you. I'm not looking at what I'm doing to cause this, right? So this is one person thinking. And one person thinking is destructive to unions because it's not fair. It's not just and it's not collaborative. But we all will do it if our heart rates go up a certain level, our blood pressure goes up a certain level. We start to produce glucocorticoids in our brain and that changes the brain from one from sympathy, compassion, empathy to one of gathering my energy to protect myself from you. We do this just like that. And so without knowing this, we're going to be victims of our own human nature. And this is everyone, by the way, levels the field. If we don't understand how this works, we're going to lose our kids. We're going to lose our closest relationships because we keep justifying our actions based on a primitive need to preserve ourselves from what we think is a threat coming from the other person. This is sort of the bane of, of human existence. And that, Stan, you're referring to both real threat as well as perceived threat, right? Perception is reality. Yeah. So think of it this way. We've never lived outside of our heads and we never will. Everything we do is an act of subjective perception. And that perception goes into the hopper with memory and experience. And that perception is driven by our current state of mind. So nothing is as it seems. And for a lot of the clients we work with, the person that has done the betrayal often gets angry and defensive when their partner who is right is experiencing perceived threat gets upset and it has trauma reactions. And they're like, but I'm not doing anything. There is no threat here. Right. That's a little like pouring fuel onto a burning fire. You're going to get consumed in that fire now. Right. Because you just denied my perception. You won, but lost because now you're more threatening to me. And so 
We have to move the bar up. All human beings, in order to be civilized, have to believe in something greater than themselves. We know this. The basic human being is not so good in relationship. So we learn in kindergarten cooperation, collaboration. We learn how to get along, and then we forget it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, we have to learn to get along because we don't naturally do that very well. We do that when we're swept away by hormones, swept away by nature's urge to procreate. But as soon as that's over, we're back to you know uh, Hulk smash. Right. Uh, we take what we want when we want it. Uh, we don't do a one-person one person system, system, right? Yes. So upping the level to a two-person psychological system is the awareness that my life depends on you. I can't do anything in union with you that we want to achieve without you. I have to consider your interests and concerns and fears at the same time I consider myself, or you will confuse me with being unfriendly and being adversarial. Everyone will do this. That compels you to do the same as I'm doing. And now we're in a loop. Now we're adversarial because of how we're playing it. We've both forgotten who we're dealing with, and we acted as if we couldn't care less about the other person's interests. And that compels the other person to do the same. Everyone will do this. So we have to now build something in that allows people to think in a different way and to level the field in terms of blame. Both are at blame here. If the car goes off the cliff and you and I are both driving it, we both did that. Neither of us did anything to change the course of that action. And so a pox on both of yeah, us. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so we're reorienting people to think in terms of a team a union, an alliance brought together, not because you're the same, but because you are different. What's making you the same is where you find yourselves being the same and where you both find agreement. That's how we've always done it. But human beings tend to focus on where they're different and where they disagree. That's energy conservation at its greatest because I don't want to think about where we could agree or where we are the same low-hanging fruit. And so we fight in the weeds and we never think about, okay, let's move up a level. Where do we agree? Um, okay, we both want love. We both want love. Yeah. We want it differently. That can be arranged. How much do we want love? When should we do it? Should we be loving even when we don't feel like it? If you're purpose-centered, the answer has to be yes. If you're feeling-centered, then it's going to be no. Well, then why come up with an, a principle? If it's going to be feeling-centered, that's where you already are. That's why you're in this mess. You build things in because you both believe in a greater life. I like that you you say that, Stan, because really when I see this, it's like having that purpose-driven direction. Like, And especially if you're repairing betrayal trauma, it has to be purpose-driven. If you've done that betrayal, you, you can't operate outside of that paradigm or it's just not going to work. It's gonna, Like you said, it's going to get into the weeds and you're both going off the cliff. And it's a lot of work to get there. It is. And even when there isn't a betrayal, even when there isn't a whole long history of injustice where partners are coming and wanting their justice at the cost of secure functioning, I want my justice, even though it perpetrates another injustice on you. Um, even when we start at the baseline, 
this is hard to do because we're human primates and human primates are messy animals. We are angels and devils, and yet we don't plan for our devils. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And doing so is a mistake. I like to say that if you're a human primate like me, you too can be an asshole. There's no way around that. Anything else is a fantasy. Uh, we know this is true. So plan for your devils, plan for what could go wrong, and build in guardrails now to protect each other. You don't do it out of emotion. Oh, he'll never do that because he loves me. She would never do that. She's a nice person. You haven't seen them yet under enough stress. And I like that you normalize the human condition. (laughs) You know, it's because it's just so true that we all have the good and the bad and that we we have to embrace both of those parts or we're doomed. We're doomed, yeah. If we don't believe we can't do wrong, even just uh, innocently, then that's a level of stupidity that's going to come home to us. Yeah. We can all be jerks. We all we are jerks. We can all be jerks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're we all we're jerks. We are. And we're all, and we're, we're a lot of other things yes. too, yeah. right? Yes. It's, it's, it's a dialectic. And I think that we're taught to believe that it's one or the other. I'm a really good person, right? That means I'll never hurt another Mother person. Mother Teresa was a jerk. Lots of stories. Uh, Gandhi was a jerk. Lots of stories. Uh, Martin Luther King, a jerk. Lots of stories. Kennedy, a jerk. <laughs> Go down the whole list. All jerks. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. As long as we're human, we're jerks. <laughs> we're also wonderful. But we don't, we don't just plan on being wonderful because we're feeling wonderful, right? Right. We build things based on a purpose because we understand our human nature. We create a purpose because we want a better life. So we create a purpose around what must be done. So say us both, even if it's the hardest thing to do. So Stan, in a concrete way, how do you actually create these rules of governance, right? How do you create these agreements? How do you create this purpose, the shared purpose? Again, from a concrete standpoint. So for people that are listening and think, okay, that's a great idea in theory, but how do you really do it? Uh, Let's take parenting. Good example. Let's say Dwayne and Marnie are fighting over parenting. Very common thing. So I might ask you, as a purpose, would you say that you have a shared purpose, that you, you want to be the best parents you can possibly be? Would you say that that is a shared purpose that you would you have? Yes? Yeah, I would okay. say yes. Yeah. Okay, now let's talk about envision. Do the both, both of you envision your children being healthy and happy? Yeah. Yes. Okay, do you want them to be good citizens? Absolutely. Yes. Do you want them to be fair and just and be able to tolerate failure without giving up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I just I'll just go down a list. You're going to say yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the truth you have a shared purpose of being the best parents you can be. Excellent. You have down the line shared vision you both agree on. Excellent. So your differences are how you are going to get there. Correct? Right. Yes. Okay. You do understand that in nature, the reason we have two parents, nature is not stupid in this way, for a child needing at least two different minds in order for the brain to develop in the first 18 months. That is a purposeful thing. The more the merrier a child needs that in the developing years and the critical periods of development, they need two different parents. That's a feature, not a bug. That you're different is better for the child than if you were a single person or you both thought the same. Do you understand? 
So all that's necessary is for the two of you to get along and to learn how to collaborate and focus on how do we do the best thing possible in this moment, not work on each other, but work on the problem. What's the best thing we can do for now? That's all we have to do as collaborators because parenting is an improvisation. It's a, children are a constant moving target right. because of the development. There is no expert here, right? Right. It's always, it's always, Absolutely. Let's, let's, try, let's try this and see if it works. If it doesn't, I'd like to do my idea. So if people just would work together and work on problems and not each other, they can get things done, right? So can you. If that's a feature, folks. Your child is not benefiting by the two of you not being able to get it together and actually come up with solutions, right? A friend of mine who just interviewed me uh, said his favorite term that I've used is when generals fight, soldiers die. And I love yes. that. Yes, because it's true. Great metaphor. It's true. Yeah. You can't. You guys are in charge of everyone and everything. If you fight, nobody benefits at all. So, yeah. yeah. Well, do you think, and Stan, do you, I'm sorry sure. to interrupt, but do you think that this, exactly what we're talking about is part of what's responsible for, um, you know, divorce and the amount of conflict with relationships and coupleships and marriages today? Those two things, lack of structure that was co-constructed, co, you know, the partners did not actively shape this block of clay that is their relationship. They did not shape it together. And that's why it tumbled into non-existence. And the other one, the manner in which they interacted under stress was too threatening without any repair at all. I don't care who you are, no union will exist for very long in that so under those conditions, period. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like getting to the problem solving and that fight or flight, being able to regulate that, being able to yes. breathe through that, learning to do that, and then focusing on the problem. And that's, you know, once again, another skill set. But what's good about it is it's learnable. It's it's something you can do. It's it's tangible. It's action-oriented. It's behavior-oriented. And that's like a really hopeful message. We have to place the bar higher and then just be guided by feelings and emotions because feelings and emotions will take us down. Yeah. We're not taught this in schools. Our kids, you know, I think about this all the time. My son is, he turned five this week and people are always asking me about school and is he learning this or is he learning that? And I say, I want him to be a good person. I want him to learn how to manage conflict, right? Like that's what I want. I want him to be kind. Um, I want him to learn to share all of these things. And those are the things that are not taught generally in school. And schools. they probably won't be. And your book, they won't be. But why not give, now obviously not to a five-year-old, but to developing teenagers, to young adults, this book in each other's care? And again, I'm not joking. I'm genuinely confused about why we don't learn these concepts earlier because everyone's running around wanting to find, like you said, biologically, we're looking to find a mate. We're looking to connect, Right. Because of parents, actually. And I say parents, I mean all parents or the parents today that are influenced by the tribalization that's happened. And tribalization is another way of saying the expression of our nature, which is to otherize, or xenophobia, or racist nature. It is built into our species. And so if we're not aware of it, we don't do anything about it. We're fractured as a society. We no longer have a shared purpose, a shared vision. And so the system is feeding on itself, right? Without a shared vision or purpose, there's civil war. 
And that's what we're experiencing. So we could teach this because there are too many people who would find that to be anti-religion or anti-this value or anti-that value. We're so fractured now that we can't do this. So this is why I appeal to couples, because couples are the smallest unit, I think, of a society. They operate under a, under a, a kind of social justice. Maybe it's not. It's anti-justice. Maybe it's anarchy. But if it's governed properly and they are able to see correctly that they're the leaders of the pack, that they are the exemplars for their children, how they operate as a couple is how the children will operate in their life, right? They're watching. That this is the best place to start as from the couple system, filtering down to the subsystem, or the children, the sibling subsystem, outward to the neighbors, outward, right? That it starts... We're talking about relationship ethics. How we're going to behave towards each other is demonstrated as theater in parenting. It's always been that way. It's got to start from the top. Otherwise, it doesn't filter down at all. Reading your book, you know, I know it's written for couples and I appreciate that because that's where the starting point, right? But I was seeing this as like, it's just so much bigger than that. It is. And then to kind of go on that point, you know, I've worked in this field long enough that I've had the pleasure of seeing couples get to the other side. And it's not just the coupleship that benefits from this work. It's their children, it's their extended family, it's their work culture. They change on such a profound level. That's what I love doing. I know Marty's on the same boat with me. It's amazing because even though, you know, we're helping couples heal and we're just working with this couple, it just expands outward to all of these other people and they all get some of that. And it's very inspiring. So I love it. It is. And it works. If it didn't work, then I wouldn't be so gung-ho. And I believe that there isn't any other system in a free union, a free and fair yeah. union, that could work except secure functioning in the long run. If you're interested in longevity and happiness, which I am both, you can have, you can have one without the other. And people often do. Longevity, but no happiness. Or happiness, but it didn't last long. Yeah. Yes. And we want for our clients and for our listeners to be happy, right? That's what we want. They're going to have to use our God-given brain, which is higher cortical areas, which in calmer moments plan, predict, and prepare for what could possibly go wrong (laughs) and not just walk into the same situation every time. Yeah. We don't do that. We don't think. We don't plan. We don't predict each other. We're predictable. We don't make each other experts on each other. We don't think we should have to. So I'm in the foxhole with someone I don't know how to manage. How safe am I? You're not very safe. Right. Not because at all. I'm an idiot because yeah. I didn't I didn't spend I want to be in the, I wouldn't want to be in that foxhole, yeah. right? With yeah. that person. You want to make sure you know how to deal with this person when they're really frightened because your life depends on it. You're not gonna lambast them for being scared, but you don't have time for that. You have to learn how to handle the animal you're actually with. And that's coupled them. If it's to be long, it has to operate under certain conditions or it cannot operate, period. In no land with human beings can that work. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, there's steps that that can happen. I I really like to give people the hope that there's concrete things. It's not complicated. It is difficult, but it's not necessarily complicated, if that makes sense. It's But it's hard. (laughs) One way to imagine it is a potato sack race. If your marriage is a potato sack race, then you will get the idea. You cannot win or get anywhere unless you move together. Yeah, I like that. 
Or if I were allowed to bind your inner legs together for a month, you would get it right away. You cannot move, go anywhere, do anything without working together. You're still individuals, but you now have a reason to find purpose and vision because you cannot get anything done unless you do. Imagine that. That's what it is. It's a team sport. It cannot be a solo sport. I love it. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. We can edit it out if it's not okay. No, um, please ask me. You tend to really share, which is what I think really helps people get what you're talking about. So um, so you're married to Tracy. I'm married to Tracy, my love. You're married to Tracy. She's fabulous. She's <laughs> working at a table down the way because she doesn't want the sound in her we had dinner once and I, I remember, and honestly, what I took away, well, lots of stuff, it was very fun. But what I really took away was I was watching you, Stan, how you and Tracy were in each other's care. The best way to say it, I was watching you look at her, like be very aware of what she was doing. I, I can't explain it. It was such a, um, it felt like a real example of what you're talking about. So I'm just wondering if you can share what it is that you do in your relationship that creates a happy, loving marriage. We are both all in on this secure functioning idea, and we have to be because we teach it, but it isn't easy. But we've benefited from it. And just as insecure relating has an accumulative effect and a snowball effect, right? It gathers speed and it creates more and more of its problems. So does secure functioning. The way we operate, we do things and don't do things on a daily basis that earns love, that earns respect, that earns admiration. We don't just wait for the feeling to come over us. We are actually doing things and not doing things according to what we believe is right and good. And so I can honestly say that she is my, my person. She's very different from me. She's just as annoying and disappointing as I am. But I, you know, I'm a grown-up. I understand that all people are annoying and disappointing. So that's fine. But she, I I can honestly say, now I'm going to tear up. I'm more in love with Tracy than I was from the beginning. That has been the case because we do things that increase our self-esteem, our own regard for ourselves and for each other, Because secure functioning is about doing the right thing or the best thing when it's the hardest to do based on what we agree to. And so it works. It's hard. But if it weren't hard, would it be worth it? Right? You know, we know what easy is and it's never been worth much. Right. Nope. (laughs) Meaningful things are often burdensome. Right. But the kind of hard it is, is hard for both of us, not one of us, because we both know the alternative because we were married prior. And we both said, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's create something different. And so that's where a lot of this came from. You know, it's not just this. This came from studies of infant maternal maternal caregiving, right? But that's just a template. So we, we live it. We don't have the fights that people have today and that we have. We still get pissed off at each other, but it does not create a commotion. It's a blip, a little fire that's out in a nanosecond. We fix things quickly. We we don't remember most of those little things that we get into. And 
we operate according to what we say. Again, it's hard. Our daughter does too, right? Uh-huh. Uh, our daughter does too. So this works in the family um, yeah. as it should. And so it's worth it. Working together as a team should not be a chore. It should be fun. The two of us or two of you or the four of you, if you're a polyamory or eight of you, I don't care. Working together to shape a culture, a union based on everyone's tastes and preferences is a joy. It's an art. It is a collaborative effort that is fun. Most people aren't there because they don't see this as something they should do or there's too much water under the bridge and they can't stop for remembering. One other point real quickly I wanted to say about memory. The reason we have to move forward is that memory is predicated on the present and the future, predicated on what we're doing now. Memory is not what we think. Memory is over. Memory is faulty. It's not what we think it is. Every time we go back and remember, we are re-waiting uh, W-E-I-G-H-T, re-waiting neural pathways that are already very active in terms of action potential, right? And so they're very ready to fire. Every time I do something that's like what I did in the past, you're going to remember because I am, I am striking that match, that uh, action potential that sets off that neural pathway in, in your brain, right? So that's how memory works. If you understand that, the only thing that changes it is doing something different now. I cannot change the past. I can only change the present and the future. That changes the memory. That actually begins to relegate memory to a dirt road in, in, in terms of neural pathways. And if people understand that, there is only one place to go, and that is forward. There's only one place to go. And this is just a fact of nature. It is what it is. I don't care how you feel about it. That is how it works. And if you can understand that, then that can also stop both of you from going back in the past, litigating the past, and start to put things in place now for the next time. Otherwise, you're just going to repeat. And there's so much freedom in being able to brace that and just accept it. And it just leads to like the ability to let go and, and not be stuck there because that's what it is. That's what it is, yeah. I wanted to say one thing to our listeners, and then I'd like to ask you, Stan, two final questions that are very much related to each other. The first thing is I want to say to our listeners, I hope that you're getting some hope here because you've got three clinicians, all who believe in couples being able to heal and not just heal and, you know, and have longevity, as you said, Stan, but who can be happy, who could be really happy and have fun. So that's the first thing. There's a lot of hope. And then the question that I wanted to ask you, Stan, is what would be the greatest takeaway you think from couples reading your book? And what would be the one thing that you would want to say to couples more than anything else that might be helpful? Secure functioning is absolutely doable. It's been proven throughout history. People are doing it today. Arch enemies have become best friends. And not only that, have come together and profited together where they were once others, right? If they can do it, anyone can do it. This has been done forever. 
And so if you don't think it's possible, just look to history, just look around you, just read about families that were in feuds, uh, countries that were at war, and then now they actually work together. If you share an enemies, we're friends. That's the takeaway. So all we need is to find where we are the same and where we do agree. That's been always the solution of bringing people together who have no interest in getting together. Just think about how the state, how this union, how the 13 colonies, how somebody, somebody's ever brought 13 colonies who are living just fine to come together to fight the British and then to unionize. Why would they want to do that? Somebody's had to work to gain consensus to do that. That's the idea. Two people can do that easily. They just have to find where they're the same and where they agree. Everyone can do that. Thank you, Stan. You are just uh, so inspiring and just bring so much hope. I love listening to you and I, I love your work. So just thank you so much for doing what you're doing. I think I'm scared about what's going on in the world like everybody else. And I think that's part of the urgency because we're all burdened now with all these existential crises and fears and so on. Everything seems to be coming apart. We need something now, at least at home, that keeps us together so that families and partners are not coming apart during this time, right? Yeah, absolutely. I hope that all of you will go out, if you have not already, and get Stan's book. And that is not, I mean, obviously I want to promote Stan's book, but it's really because I think that every couple should learn about this. We should all learn about having a shared purpose and creating agreements in our relationship and being a two-person system and what secure functioning is. I mean, that's what we need to learn. And so I'm glad you wrote this book. I feel like it is already helping a lot of people. It will continue to do so. And I can't wait to read your next book. Thank you. Well, I'm doing, I'm doing an update of Wired for Love. So a lot of my new thinking and, uh, and some, some more self-disclosure in that book as well. Oh, that's exciting. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself because I do think that that helps people understand these concepts and also feel like they're not alone in all of this. Yeah. Thank you both very, very much. Well, aloha. Aloha. <laughs> aloha. <laughs> Mahalo. Mahalo. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Duane in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.